Well, good morning, Redeemer family. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor to share the Word of God with you all um, as we return back to the book of James. So please turn, tap, or swipe your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, or it's printed in your bulletin as well if you'd like to uh, pull that out as well. Now, as you turn there, I want to just kind of do a little brief recap of what we have covered in our time in the book of James. You got to remember again that James was a letter that was not written to just an individual person, but rather it was a letter that was to be read out in the churches where it was to be heard by the people of the church. So we're thinking of this as as not just a self-help book, but rather to remind the church of what its future hope is in Christ to endure sufferings and trials of living scattered throughout the dispersion. And how God's identity roots us in a true understanding of ourselves as the body of Christ and how we relate to the world that we live in. And so today, we're going to answer a question that, that James is going to give us his wisdom, uh, the, God's wisdom on, on what real Christianity looks like. We're going to talk about what real Christianity looks like. So let's look at James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. As we hear God's holy word, let's all stand as we hear the reading of God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we ask that your word would be implanted in us and speak to us, to cause us to be united to Christ in word and in deed. Bless the preaching of your word now. May your Holy Spirit convict our hearts, help us to see our need for your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, March of 1987. In a crowded room in the Christie's Auction House in London, England, history was made as a painting was sold for the highest price for, on record for that time. The equivalent of 73 million U.S. dollars, a, pictures, a picture of a sunflower in a vase was sold to an insurance magnate in Tokyo. Now, why would a picture of some sunflowers in a vase sell for $73 million 
See, because the artist of that painting was Vincent van Gogh, one of the most famous artists of all time. The world was put on notice about the astronomical sum paid for a single piece of artwork. This was worldwide news. But there was one question that the auctioneers and the buyer of the painting were repeatedly asked over and over again after the painting had been sold and hung in the museum where it resides today in Japan. And that question is simply this. Is that a real Vincent van Gogh painting or is it a fake one? You see, for decades and decades, there was, there was peculiar things about this painting that art historians and journalists were noticing, and they were looking at, when they looked at the brush strokes, when they looked at, at, at the lining of the page, when they saw the canvas that it was painted on, there was a lot of questions on whether this is a real, authentic Vincent van Gogh or a fake. This obsession to knowing what is real is something that is innate with all of us. We want to know how to spot the real deal. We don't like fake products. We don't like fake people. We hate fake news, right? And if there's anything that is easy to hate, it is fake religion and fake religious people. And so when we want to know in all these fake things, how do we spot the real deal? What are the signs and the signals? You know, when we... Look at the book of James, and when we looked at the book of James several weeks ago, James was discussing who we really are in God's sight. That this Father of lights looks at us and calls us his first fruits. That our identity is wrapped up in not being deceived by examining the truth. You see, James wants his church to endure suffering through trials. He wants them to be steadfast. He wants them to embrace hardships for the glory of God. And in order to do that, he wants them to embrace the real painting that is the Christian life. So how do we spot the canvas correctly and what is real in our faith and what is fake? James gives us several contrasts, these sort of brushstrokes to look for in our text today. So the first thing that James tells us to look for in what is real and how to spot the real deal is this. Don't react to the world, but receive the word. Don't react to the world, but receive the word. James here is talking about the behavior in these first several verses about an individual to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because he's speaking about the reality of the world that we live in today and the reality of our sinful hearts and our sinful behavior. We want to react to everything that's in the world. We want to react in ways that the world dictates that we should react to it, that the world tells us how we should react. And if there's anything that is being sold to us in this current age that we live in, it's the currency of reaction, the currency of reaction. Every day you are given a vast array of media to consume and sources that, that surround you to simply to tell you to do one thing, react to me, react Right? Tristan Harris, a, a former high-level designer programmer at Google, who now goes speaking on the moral consequences of our technology, says this about those who design social media sites. He's, he quotes this. No one is working to make our products less addictive. 
And never before in history have 50 designers in California made decisions that would impact 2 billion people. 2 billion people would now have thoughts that they didn't intend to have because someone at Google decided this is how notifications work. Isn't that amazing? Why does this culture of reaction persist? Because these companies know, and we inherently know this as well, that if we can react to something, then we will be engaged with whatever platform is in front of us. It will make us believe that what matters most is our reaction and how other people react to our reaction. It will make us focus on our personal outrage rather than keeping peaceful order. And it will blind us to seeing the reality and the truth. And so James is saying here to all of that, which is all that's in our world and all that's in our space right now, the anger of man, if you look at these verses, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. None of what we're seeing in our culture right now is what a real Christian engages in. That's the fake painting. A Christian whose heart is is filled with outrage all the time, who's always angry, a Christian who's always upset, always needing to react to something, that is not the real deal. And actually, where our hearts are led astray to ungodly anger, we are actually embracing the very darkness of the sin in this world, and we are in need of the restoration of our hearts and souls. I mean, how many of us, we feel the weight of that darkness, don't we? It's even this week. How many of us come, we we feel like we're covered in in the filth and the dirt of our reactionary world. And and I don't know about you, but don't your souls just feel weary? I, I know mine does. What could possibly heal us? James answers by telling us not to react, but to receive. He says, to receive with meekness the implanted word, verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, at first glance, this this phrase might appear strange to us because we are so used to attributes like power and strength and dominance to, to be the things that carry us out of darkness. It almost seems like when he's saying, with meekness, receive, it almost sounds like a defeatist response, right? We're saying like, Lord, you just want me to be meek to, to, you know, like it sounds kind of like what I hear from the world, you know, do my breathing exercises, hang, hang a keep calm and carry on picture in my bathroom and then, you know, just call it a day. Like, what are you, what are you telling me to do here, Lord, right? Um, but if, if we're looking at that as our definition of meekness, that in terms of receiving, we're, we're going to miss what James is saying here. So we, let's, let's talk about what the implanted word means. What scripture here is saying is that all of us who have heard the gospel All of us who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, we now have his words implanted in our hearts. And James is saying that the solution to a world in reaction is a real Christian who receives with humility the gospel that is now in you. In other words, you receive the word instead of reacting to the world. You tap into the root of faith, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will realize that the answer to anger, rage, suspicion, doubt, fear, defensiveness, reaction, all of these things is the humility of the living word. 
Christ, who was quick to listen to the hurting, to the little children that would come to him. Right? Christ, who was there to reach out to the leper, despite hearing all the noise and the slander of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Christ, who was slow to speak on the cross when he was mocked, spit on, beaten. And rather than get an outrage, calls for the forgiveness of those who did not know what they were doing to him. Christ, who, who died for our sins and our unrighteousness so that we could see the promises of God fulfilled. Christ, who was slow to become angry. Living in a world filled with unrighteousness and unrighteous behavior. With all the paganism of the Roman Empire, Christ lived lowly. Christ lived in meekness. Christ didn't react to the world, but instead called us to receive him. And when that word is implanted in you, Christ has written his word into your heart so that you may not sin against him. You will live out the fruits of the soil that God himself has planted in you. In other words, you don't need to seek validation from the world when you already have a God who says, I have hidden my word inside your heart. And I have given you a new spirit. I have given you a new hope. I have given you a new identity. You don't need the praise of those around you to affirm your worldview or need to speak out at every twist and turn because that becomes an endless void of seeking approval that drains you of your heart and discourages your spirit. Instead, receive the great truth of the good news of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Receive his invitation. If you are not a Christian, receive the invitation that Christ is extending to you, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. Receive the promises of God that are faithful in a world that changes every single day. Receive our steadfast God. The real Christian receives, doesn't react. Second, the real Christian receives, but the, also the real Christian does. The real Christian is doing the Christian life rather than hearing the Christian life. Now, that's not contradicting what I just said before, right? What we're talking about is hearing leads to the doing. So we're doing the Christian life rather than just simply hearing the Christian life. James uses this brilliant, quick parable of someone who looks into a mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what he was like. It's, it's akin to someone who hears the word of God, right, whose words weren't written on the hearts, but sort of just brushes off like rain on a rain jacket this morning, as all of you experienced, right? James will develop this idea more fully later in this book when he talks about faith and works, but the point is clear right here in, this, in these quick, compact verses. You cannot have the implanted Word of God within you without changing the way you live your life. There lies in you, after the Word of God has been written on your heart, a new law that guides everything that you do in your life. 
It's an encounter with God so magnificent, so amazing, that it changes every rule of life that you had before. When you realize what a real Christian life is, when the Word of God is implanted in you, you can never be the same again. Life cannot go on in the same way that life has been going on before. Let me just kind of try to paint a picture for you here of what this would look like. Okay. Imagine with me, right, let's, let's take all of you back, maybe some of you way back to your high school graduation, all right? If you're a, a kid here, right, uh, go back to the last graduation that you had, okay? All right. Now imagine on that graduation moment all the emotions of that day, the people that you were with, right, the pride of your families, screaming when your name was called, right, the pictures, the celebration, the food, right? All these amazing things that happened in that graduation moment. And now imagine you wake up the very next day and you go back to the high school and you sit in class, in the same classes that you sat in before, your backpack, your lunchbox, and you pretend like nothing had ever had happened. And the people coming at you and the students are looking at you and they're going like, hey, wait a minute, D- didn't you graduate? And you say to them, nope, I didn't. I didn't graduate. I'm just here. I'm just here to hear. I love these classes. I love hearing these classes, right? And, the, and people are going, to, no, no, you shouldn't be here anymore, right? You've graduated. You've graduated from the school. Why are you here? And you're like, I just, I'm here. And the principal comes to you, right? And he says, you know, you're a graduate of the school now. You don't need to be here. And you stare at him and you say, no, I'm not. I'm still just going to come here because I like hearing the classes. I don't need to do anything anymore. I can just come here and hear the good message and just simply be a high schooler for the rest of my life. Now, you know where I'm going here with this, don't I? Don't you? I think that this is where a lot of Christians imagine themselves. They wrongly confuse these categories of the Christian life. They think that being justified by Christ, right, faith alone and Jesus alone for salvation alone means that any kind of doing outside of the good news is, is dangerous. We should avoid that. So instead of being this new identity, instead of being someone who is justified, given a new heart, new desires, a new law, they wake up And they go to their high school class, despite being a graduate. Now, this sensitivity, faith alone, in Christ alone, by his works alone, is not bad. And I don't want to say to anyone that that is wrong. That is not, right? That is incredibly true. And that's the power of the good news of the gospel. However, there is a beautiful part of the gospel that I think we forget sometimes, right? And that is this. The Bible just simply doesn't end with Jesus on the cross redeeming us from our sins. As beautiful of a message as it is. Otherwise, your Bible would end at the book of John, the fourth gospel. The gospel is more than just about individual salvation. The gospel is God renewing his kingdom that is coming through the church who are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ doing and living out his commands. That Jesus is coming again and that he is establishing a new kingdom through his people, the church. You see, the gospel is more than just conversion. The gospel is a calling. 
I'm going to say that again. The gospel is more than just conversion. The gospel is a calling, a calling to understand that we have a beautiful new identity as a new creation in the new heavens and the new earth. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. We need to be people of the kingdom, to be doers of the faith. But how can anyone be a doing Christian? You know, when we look at a phrase like this, I'll admit, the phrase of doing is going to lead us to one of two temptations. One temptation is pride, right? For all of you doers in the room, who are my doers in the room here, all right? Oh, some of you are just raising your hands, okay? Wow, that is a bold confession. We will pray for you, okay, right? If you are doing this room, the temptation for you is to be driven to pride. I did it. I did it. I was able to live for Jesus. The other temptation is despair. How many of you are my despair folks here, right? right? And you're like, there is no way that I can do what Jesus is asking me to do, so I'm just going to give up. I am not going to even try. I am going to set the bar low so that I will never disappoint myself, right? That's some of us here today. What James is saying when he's talking about doing is not the temptation of pride, but the temptation of despair. What he is saying is not, he is not saying, become a bunch of Marthas instead of Marys. No. Verse 25, if you look at it, gives a very important guide to remind us of the source of the doing. It isn't when you look on the outside of what your faith produces, is, that's not the doing. It is not looking inside yourself and find coming some kind of like hidden inner strength to do it. That's not the doing. No, James here instead tells us to look at the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere. Now, this is hard because none of us have ever lived in an age of perfect law. So this is kind of hard to imagine. We, we live in an age where all that we see around us is sort of unjust laws, right? So an analogy might be more important for us here to, to understand. What, what does he mean when he's talking about perfect law? Uh, when you are playing a game or a sport, it, it's important that when the game is played that the rules are, are, are kept in the way that it was intended. That everyone is following the laws exactly in order to properly play the game or the, or the sport, right? Uh, you can't play basketball like you play soccer, right? It's just not going to work, okay? Uh, and there's nothing that you can do to change that, right? Your effort within the game does not change the law of the game. Our interpretation of how the game looks on the outside doesn't change the law of the game. When we play the game according to the, game, the, the laws of the game, in order to play, it was intended we are keeping the perfect law. This, by the way, as, as an aside, is why everyone's favorite way to discredit Tom Brady's accomplishments is to call him a cheater, right? We say that, oh, he didn't follow the rules, right? The, the game like everyone else. But what James is saying here is that the source of our doing comes from not our effort and how we play the game of life, but in looking at the law of God, it's a perfect law, and seeing how life should be lived. And this is why the implanted word in us is so vital for us. This is why we need to be in the word. This is why we exhort you to read your scriptures, because this is the key to real doing. Instead of fake doing where, where we're 
just trying real hard or we fall into despair, when we realize that the implanted Word of God, the Scriptures inside, resides inside of you, this Word will be living and active in your heart and in your life. This Word will never return back void. This Word is sharper than any double-edged sword, cutting through the marrow and the, bo- and the bone. And when you realize, when you're looking at this perfect law, the law of liberty, what you are really looking at is you are looking at the fulfiller of the law. Again, here we see this looking to Christ. Christ, who lived the law perfectly. Christ, who is the law of liberty that sets us free from our sin and our striving, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Christ, who perseveres who guides our steps and promises us the help of the Holy Spirit to lead us when we look to Christ as the fulfillment of the law, we are given the guarantee that those who do so will be blessed in their doing. In other words, the key to doing the Christian life is looking to the promises that Christ gave to us. The promise that he gave to us that this, when he said that those who look to him, he will take their yokes and give him his yoke because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The doing becomes easy because it is no longer about you or your effort anymore. It is about Christ who takes your burdens onto himself because he cares for you. And when this happens, you move from looking to Christ to not just a doer, but to the one who is being. Not just a doer, but to one who is being. Look at verse 25 again, and you'll see that those who look to the perfect Christ, who have been set free by the law of liberty, who perseveres in trials and suffering, is being. Being no hearer, as the verse says, being no hearer who forgets, but being a doer who acts. You see, the core of your identity is now shifted. You are blessed in your doing because you are being the blessing that Christ in you is becoming. Track with me there. You simply cannot be a hearer anymore. You are the real painting. There is no way that you can be fake anymore. No one can ever take that away from you. I want you to hear the good news of that. When the word of God is implanted in you, when the Holy Spirit resides in you, no one can take that away from you. You are the real deal. Not rejection, not heartache, not persecution, not the government, not society, not your job title, not the praise and adoration of man. No one can take that away from you. Why? See, because you were fashioned by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has called you his sheep, and he has said that I have not lost a single one of them. His seal of the Holy Spirit is on your heart. It is a seal of an authentic, 100% certified child of God. You are his great canvas, filled with dignity, worth, value. You have the hand and the brushstrokes of God placed upon you. No one can ever take away the person that you are in the person of Jesus Christ. This leads us to our final point regarding how we spot real Christianity over fake Christianity. 
So number one, we receive. Number two, we do. And now number three, to live in charity rather than to live in chatter. To live in charity rather than to live in chatter. Now, what do I mean by this? You see, doing the Christian life isn't like living like a wild horse where you can do whatever you want and say what you, whatever you want. When, when James here in these verses is referring to bridling the tongue, he has in mind the dangers of letting loose a wild animal and the destruction that this would cause. That isn't the law of liberty. That is chaos and foolishness of the highest order. This is why he calls that person's religion worthless. Chatter, by its own definition, is to speak in trivialities. It's to be a person of talk who says meaningless things that are worthless in God's eyes. You know, in other words, this is like 95% of everything that's posted online, right? Um, This is worthless, all right? Don't do it. Don't fall into the trap of it. It's about living the real authentic faith in the form of charity. Charity. The early church father, Augustine, speaks about this on the idea where true religion is found in acts of love and kindness rather than just in mere talk, in mere chatter. And this is from one of his homilies speaking about the the, the concept of love and what love really looks like. And so hear this quote from Augustine. Love is a sweet word, but sweeter the deed. To be always speaking of it is not in our power, for we have many things to do, and various businesses draw us in different ways, so that our tongue has not leisure to be always speaking of love, as indeed our tongue could have nothing better to do. But though we may not always be speaking of it, we may always keep it. He that praises God with his tongue cannot always be doing this. He that by his life and conduct praises God can be doing it always. You see what he's saying here? Our tongues can get us into tremendous deceptions of our hearts. It can tell us things that simply aren't true about the world and about what God has called us to do. But you know what can? Love. Doing love. Charity. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, as James writes, right? Imitating the love of our Father. This is why he uses the word Father here in these verses, right? Taking care of the least of these in the society, right? This is, this is why, why James is targeting orphans and widows here, you see, is, is back then in the biblical time. This is uh, one of the things that the early church did very well. They embraced the marginalized groups in their society. They, they embraced those who were in distress, those who were facing oppression. And so when James is using the words orphan and widows, yes, we, we need to be absolutely thinking about orphans and widows, but it's also sort of a catch-all term talking about the least of these. The least of these. True religion is the imitation of the heart of our God the Father who looks at us in our helplessness, who looks at us in our estate and gives to us charity that breaks through false religion and gives us what we do not deserve, gives us grace. So let's just pause here and think about this because I don't want to to walk away just, again, hearing this. I want you to think about this right now tangibly. Who in your life do you need to show charity to this week? Who do you need to visit? 
or invite or Zoom. Who right now is helpless that you know you need to help to be light in their darkness and to reach out to them and show them the charity of Jesus? How can we be people that just stop just talking about charity and be people of charity? And how, by the way, would that change the world around us for the gospel of Jesus Christ? That our gospel is not just a gospel in word, but in deed. You know, one of the greatest ironies about Vincent van Gogh is that he wouldn't have ever become a painter if it weren't for the charity of one person. His younger brother, Theo van Gogh, the man completely responsible for Vincent van Gogh's success. You see, Vincent van Gogh was actually a failed minister who who turned to art as sort of a last resort. And he was a terrible painter in his original painting career. He couldn't even sell more than one painting before he passed away, tragically. Vincent was poor, he was destitute, he was extremely erratic, and he was fearful that his life would not amount to anything. His younger brother, Theo, who was a successful arts dealer, a man with a steady job and a stable career, looked at his brother and brought charity. He paid him 150 francs a week to take care of his needs so that he could paint. And when his brother passed away, he risked his entire reputation as an arts dealer to share his brother's works to the world. You see, Theo... Instead of reacting to the world's thoughts, Theo, who was a dedicated Christian, received the implanted word of Christ and started doing by showing charity to his brother, Vincent. The only reason why Vincent was able to, to paint it all was because of him. That one act of charity brought to the world perhaps the greatest artist who had ever lived. So when we embrace all of what Scripture is teaching us this morning, you will realize that living as a real Christian, knowing that you are fashioned by God, that you're the real deal because the implanted word is within you, because you've received the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, leads you into a life that will transform the people and the world around you for the glory of Jesus Christ and for his kingdom. I want you to dwell upon that and meditate on that today as we pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words that remind us of what real Christianity is and what it looks like, of how grace changes and transforms us. Lord, of how we cannot go back living the way that we used to, because your word has transformed us. God, as as your church, as your hands and feet, let us be doers of the word and not just hearers. And let us not react to the world's uh, wickedness and filthiness. Let us receive Christ and in doing so, bring about the kingdom of God by your spirit and your power. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things.
してね。